Friends, I invite you to be seated. We are continuing today in this worship series that goes along with the devotional book that you may be reading and the discussion groups that we're offering alongside of that, focusing on a good enough faith, recognizing the ways that we get caught up in the perfection paradigm, thinking we have to be perfect in every way in order to be worth something. And so we are breaking that apart, and today we are exploring the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, through that lens. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I am learning. I am learning that there is no such thing as a completely baby-proofed house. For a while, securing all the most basic and dangerous risks a house presents to a baby, putting a gate at the top of the stairs, child-proof locks in the cabinet, holding the cleaning products, and so on and so forth, for a while, doing those things will seem sufficient. This, it turns out, is a false sense of security. One day, without any warning whatsoever, an infant will suddenly be able to reach everything that had seemed well out of reach the day before, and you will never be able to completely catch up again. Or at least this is where we find ourselves living right now with a 10-month-old in the house, 10-month-old who happens to be highly curious. Most recently, after putting childproof locks on all of the lower cabinets in the kitchen, we discovered that our son could stand up and reach his arms up just far enough to pull the drawers above the cabinets open, blindly flailing his way through them and pulling things out and throwing them on the floor. Ultimately, this just means that it is important to keep a watchful eye on this child, as is probably standard for supervising any small child, stepping in to remove anything that a baby shouldn't be getting into which this last week meant taking away a small clay pot I had forgotten that we had tucked away in a little corner in our basement. This very pot is a pot that I had made myself a long time ago back in the third grade in art class. It is not a very well-crafted artistic specimen. I know that now as surely as I knew it then. I remember making this pot in the third grade. I remember learning the technique of the pinch pot, how you would take the ball of clay and you would press your thumbs into the center of it, trying to create a pot shape. And I remember trying and trying and trying again to press that lump of clay into the contours of the perfect bowl that I could see in my mind, because I could visualize the pot that I was trying to create, except reality refused to cooperate. What in my mind's eye was sleek and smooth turned out to be lopsided and rather misshapen under my fingers. At every stage in this artistic creation, I found myself falling short of the artistic standards that I had set for my pot. When we went to add a decorative border around the edge, well, I had trouble because some of my markings were harder and deeper in than others, and there's this moment here where it all dips down widely below the rim of the pot, which I never intended and yet happened just the same. And when we went to go paint on the glaze, well, my glaze ended up lumpy. There's a few spots on the inside where there is too much, and there's a few spots on the outside where there is too little. 
I employed every artistic finesse that an eight-year-old has to employ, but in the end, my pot was fired in the kiln, and it only made its shortcomings permanent. Except that then, from the kiln, my pot went with all the other pots with my, that my classmates had made to the school art show, where my floundering little creation sat on a table next to a little strip of paper that named me as its creator. It flustered and embarrassed me a bit, having my little pot celebrated in this artwork show. It wasn't a perfect pot. It still isn't a perfect pot. I mean, weren't there any standards at this elementary school art show? You can't just put out an imperfect pot and celebrate it, can you? My parents took my pot home. They put it in their china cabinet. Unfortunately, behind the glass door where everyone could see it, where it stayed until it eventually made its way into my hands, where I put it in the basement, far away from any prying eyes, until it was discovered by ten-month-old chubby fingers. And when I went to rescue this pot, I was surprised to discover that it was both for my son's safety and because I did not want this little pot to be broken. It's not a perfect pot, but maybe that didn't have to stop me from cherishing and celebrating it just the same. That might be one of the lessons of the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is one of the better known and most loved stories in the whole of Scripture, which can present to us a particular problem as listeners. The preacher, Barbara Brown Taylor, describes this parable as being limp from too much handling the sort of story that we can have heard so many times over that we might forget to listen to it again and simply let it conform to familiar interpretations and understandings instead. But this parable does its best work when it is let loose in the imagination where we can discover new or simply renewed meaning. Parables are a particular form of teaching, designed to do this, to confound our expectations, to stir our imaginations, to pull at what we thought we knew, and to push us towards important questions. As was the case with last week's parable, and all parables, this rarely means that any of the characters are exact representations of us or of God. We might catch glimpses of God in the parable in one character or another, but the parable nevertheless resists becoming a simple allegory that can be dismissed with a simple meaning. In telling a parable, Jesus' intent is to offer a depth of meaning, enough to last a lifetime. Now, it begins simply enough. There once was a man with two sons, Jesus says, And what sounds familiar to us today would have felt familiar even to his original audience because they would have recognized those particular words as a convention that began many of the biblical stories they were familiar with. There once was a man who had two sons, Cain and Abel, or Isaac and Ishmael, or Jacob and Esau. They would have been familiar with stories about men with two sons, and so they would have been able to guess some of the dysfunctional family dynamics that were about to come. And they might even have guessed at the reconciliation to follow. In those familiar stories, Isaac and Ishmael have a falling out, but they come together to bury their father Abraham. And Jacob and Esau had a falling out, 
But after years of enmity, they come together to embrace and kiss one another. Jesus' listeners would have known how these sorts of stories go, that as much as we struggle with it, reconciliation has always been the story of God. God has always been one to seek out the lost and to welcome them back into the family. That's why God sent prophets to Israel and Jonah to Nineveh with messages about returning to the God who was ready to embrace them. Even the rush of a father out to a son, as we see in this parable, would not have felt incongruous to his audience. An early rabbinic commentary on the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, tells a story about a king whose son has gone astray on a long journey. And when the son insists that he cannot possibly go home, his father sends word to him saying, return as far as you can, and I will come the rest of the way to you. And so God does say the same to us. The commentary says, return as far as you can to me, and I will return the rest of the way to you. Now, even Jesus himself encourages his audience to anticipate a familiar story of the lost being found as God does, as the scriptures declare. And Jesus does this by telling a series of parables. This is the third parable that Jesus tells in a row. The first is a story of a shepherd searching out the one sheep out of a hundred that had gone astray. And the second was about a woman who had searched and swept her whole house to find one silver coin out of ten that she had lost. Now, this third parable will either confirm the pattern of the lost being found out or is setting us up for a surprise. At first, the pattern holds. The younger son leaves and returns, and there is great fanfare and celebration. Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, the father says. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, fetch the fatted calf, and slaughter it. We must, we must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now is found. And it echoes the ending of the first two parables. The shepherd having found his sheep, calls to his friends and his neighbors and says, celebrate with me because I have found my lost sheep. And the woman, having found her lost coin, calls to her friends and to her neighbors saying, celebrate with me for I have found my lost coin. And at the end of both parables, Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in heaven over one sinner who repents. This is an important lesson of the first two parables and an important lesson of the third parable. But the third parable isn't over yet. There's a surprise, and we come face to face with the older brother. He has been basically unnoticed and forgotten so far in this story, and so an interesting question emerges. Which son went missing? A certain man had two sons, which is easier to count than a hundred sheep and even easier to count than ten silver coins. One ran away and then came back, and another never left but can't quite seem to come inside. Which is the one, the sheep, which one is the sheep the father should be leaving the flock to find? Which one is the coin the father should be turning his house upside down to look for? The older son is coming in from the fields when he discovers this ongoing celebration, Jesus tells us, and when he finds out what's going on, he's furious, and he refuses to go inside. 
Commentators often paint his response as being unloving or uncaring, just sort of grumbling. But I wonder if his fury was masking deep hurt. He was forgotten. Forgotten, counted out, overlooked. The father wants to celebrate his reunion with his younger son, but gives no thought of including his older child, sending servants to fetch the fatted calf, but never to fetch his other son in the fields. If this older brother hadn't found his own way to the party, would they ever have noticed him missing? How long before they turned the house upside down looking for him, before they left to search him out? And so we can hear the painful fury of the brother when he talks to his father outside and says, Look, I've done right by you all these years, and you've never given me so much as a young goat in celebration. But when the son of yours comes home, then you, you slaughter the fatted calf for him. We might imagine the extra work the older brother has taken on over these years as the only remaining child. How much harder he had to labor in the fields or how he cared for his father in grief over a son who might well be dead. He has been the perfect son in every way that he knows how to be. And he cannot understand why now the son who has done nothing right would be celebrated. Except that in his pain, the older brother is making some unfounded assumptions about the younger son. He insists to his father that the younger child has wasted his inheritance on prostitutes. But the older brother is the only one to mention or suggest such a thing. And he hasn't even seen his brother since he has come home. Why, we don't have a whole lot of idea about what the younger brother was doing in his time away. In fact, there's a whole lot of ambiguity surrounding the younger brother and whether he did anything wrong at all. As the story goes, the son asks his father for his inheritance, which was probably short-sighted, almost certainly a bit rude, but not sinful or else his father wouldn't have let himself be complicit by giving it to him. And this younger son takes the money and he wastes it on extravagant living, the story tells us, which is still very much a poor choice, but hardly the worst choice that we've ever seen anyone make. And this younger son couldn't have predicted the famine, and when it did hit, he was willing to work. And it's not his fault that he lived in a society where people could put in an honest day's work and still not have enough to feed themselves at the end of the day. It's not even clear whether the younger child even thought to himself that he had sinned and had something to repent for. The story tells us that he has come to his senses and realizes his father's servants have more to eat than they could eat, and so there might be repentance there, but there might also be the realization that he knows where to go to be fed. He practices a speech, and he says to himself, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And it sounds good. It sounds so good. But those are the same words that Pharaoh once said to Moses, and it was clear then that Pharaoh's repentance wasn't real. It's ambiguous whether this hungry child situation led him to repentance or whether he thought his best way out was to run home to daddy and sound religious when he got there. But in the end, it hardly seems to matter. 
The father never lets this younger child even finish his prepared speech on repentance. The father grabs him in an embrace, dresses him in fabulous clothing, and starts the celebration. All that matters is he's home. Whether he's a fool or a sinner, maybe both, will be sorted out in due time in the loving embrace of a family, that loving embrace that forever encourages us to live every day as better people than we were the day before, whether fools, sinners, or anything else. It's proof that you don't have to be perfect to be counted. You don't have to be perfect to be welcomed home, that our proximity to perfection, whether we're close or very, very far away, is inconsequential when it comes to being celebrated by those we love. But it only makes it even more tragic that the older son, who lived at home all this time, has never known that he didn't need to be perfect to earn his father's love. Beloved child, his father says to him, Oh, my beloved son. I wonder if we might hear grief in his voice, an apologetic sorrow coming through. Oh, my beloved son, he says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead, who was dead, is now alive. He was lost, and now is found. And so he's explaining that his reasons for celebration are unrelated to what the younger child had or had not done. And I wonder if out there, looking at his older child, the father might not have begun to see how to apply the same principles to the older son as well. I wonder if there, standing outside in the cool air with a muffled sound of the celebration in their ears, whether that could be the moment when another son, who once was lost, might now be found again, who might come in and come home, who might know that he doesn't have to be perfect to earn his father's love. And there the parable ends. Without an ending, really. Will the man with two sons have two sons once again for the first time since the story began? Will they all come to know for themselves and for others that you don't have to be perfect to be celebrated and loved? Brene Brown writes in one of her books that perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Perfectionism is the belief that if we live perfect, look perfect, and act perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. It's a shield, she says. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us when in fact it's the only thing that's really preventing us from taking flight. The older brother clung to perfectionism as we all sometimes do, learning somewhere along the way, ever so wrongly, that doing the right things in the right way, being perfect, might protect him from being forgotten, when in fact it might have prevented him from reaching out to those he loved. For those who have been trying so hard for so long, this may be a welcome message. You are loved and have been loved by a God who does not hold back from celebrating all of us when we excel and when we falter. For we are always and forever beloved children of God and welcome 
at home. There's a story that sounds like a parable from a book about art. It goes something like this. There once was an art teacher who divided their pottery class into two groups. One was told that they would be graded on the quantity of pots that they made, measured solely in the weight of all of their final products. The other was told that they would be graded on quality, that they were to turn in only one perfect pot. And at the end of the assignment, after days of working with clay and painting and firing pots, it was discovered that all of the superior pots came from the group that made more of them than they could count, while the group striving for a single perfect pot had faltered in the task. And so it may be that by celebrating every moment of our lives and those around us, we may in fact be encouraged toward perfection in love. Not because we believe we must be perfect to be loved, but because we know we are loved wherever we fall along the scale. We don't have to hold ourselves or anyone else to a standard that thinks we have to be perfect to be loved because God is holding a party to celebrate all of God's beloved children. Come on in. See, the family's not complete until we're all inside the tent and feasting together in a place where we are celebrated and know that we are loved. Thanks be. Friends, I invite you to stand in body or in spirit to sing our next hymn.